welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded territory of the Musqueam people at UBC's Point Grey campus. I don't know what that transition was from exactly. I'm starting the show, but, you know, spontaneity. Uh, we are joined today by Jana Hertzig of First Pick Handmade to kick off the show with an interview about something I actually know almost nothing about, and that is Vancouver's indie fashion scene. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> Pretty good, can't complain. You know, um, I, I do have to say first off, so First Pick Handmade is a festival for indie fashion in Vancouver. And I I really didn't know that there was an indie fashion scene in the city. I'm just wondering if you could unpack that for a little bit. What is that scene like? Well, there's actually a lot of independent um, slow fashion, eco fashion, upcycling you name it, being made in Vancouver. But the thing is, we never actually really hear about it because a lot of the marketing is focused on, you know, the bigger brands. We see billboards with, you know, H&M or, you know, mall-type stores. But smaller companies, we don't get the same, you know, we don't get the same advertising opportunities. So unless you're kind of already aware, you're not, you're not as likely to seek it out. And so what I've kind of found in starting this show is that there's a lot of designers out there making amazing stuff but nobody really knows about them or the communities within indie fashion don't actually know about each other so if they're you know graduates from you know design school they'll they'll know the people in their classes but they won't know people that went to another school or they won't know you know some of the more existing fashion brands that have been around forever. So it's nice to be able to kind of combine people all in one space and we can work together as a group and also to introduce ourselves to each other as well as the broader community of Vancouver. So it's kind of an exciting thing. And slow fashion, is that specifically tailored against the trend of things like H&M? Yeah, like fast that? fashion is H&M. It's the mall stores. It's places you know, that are cranking out, you know, not even just seasons, but they do micro seasons where it's, you know, every six weeks, it's the whole store is turning over. Whereas with slow fashion, you get a lot more made to order, you get a lot more um, tailoring, you get a lot of people that are taking fabrics that are, you know, dead stock, and they have a bolt of this fabric, and they're using that until it's gone. And then it's over. They're not trying to pump out stuff just to sell. Like they're, they're doing things with intention. And I think that that really shines through in in our event. And it's really inspiring. You think there's more concern for the individual customer as well, that there's definitely a better product as a result of that? Oh, definitely. Because when you're getting something that's mass produced and it's being made overseas, it's often with cheaper fabrics. So it's not going to okay. wear as well. Like tissue paper. Yeah. Well, not tissue paper exactly, but no, right. almost. Tissue paper almost. would hold up a little better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're they're cheaper fabrics. They're, they don't feel as nice to wear. They don't wash as well. And then, you know, the, the actual products are made, you know, really fast so that the sewing isn't isn't as nice. Like they're not made to last beyond, you know, a wash, basically. Whereas with slow fashion, it's kind of, you know, the opposite of that. Like we're trying to make things that people are going to own for forever or for years and years or that if they're not able to wear it anymore it's still that level of quality where they could you know give it to a thrift store or pass it on to a friend and then someone else can use it whereas you know I find like I thrift a lot because that's part of my job for the line that I do 
and I find a lot of the fast fashion stuff, it's the quality, you, you can't even reuse the fabrics. Like it's a lot of, you know, polyesters, it's a lot of weird blends, it's really cheaply made. And so the fabric isn't, like it's not nice. And so with slow fashion, we're trying to make something that, you know, people are going to want to hold on to. That's, that's a, definitely a good ethos. And you said that so thrifting influences your personal design. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us how you came to that? Like what informs your style specifically? Well, a little bit, bit of background on myself. Um, I started as an artist in 1998. So I've been an artist now for 20 years <laughs> working on some line or another. And when I first started... I made bags because I couldn't find a bag that I liked that I felt, you know, suited my style. And I had gone to I had gone to England and I saw all these bags and I thought, oh, I don't want to buy this because, you know, it'll come to Canada in a few months. Like, we'll see it. And it never came. And so I thought, you know, screw this. I'm going to, you know, start doing this on my own. And I knew a lot of independent designers at that point because I worked in, t- in a little boutique that was downtown Granville Street and we sold, you know, these independent designers. And so I knew them and no one was doing bags. So I thought, oh, this is awesome. You know, it's a niche that I can fill. So I started making these bags and I actually quit my job (laughs) and just kind of taught myself as I went along and, you know, figured that this was better than any design school because I was learning, you know, on the job experience every day. And so I basically taught myself how to sew and, you know, marketing and all these other things. But fast forward, um, you know, probably to about 2012, I decided that I wanted to use repurposed fabrics. And so instead of making these bags, which I was making out of vinyl, I decided to turn more of a focus onto using recycled cashmere, which is what I'm actually doing today. So I make a line called Winterlux Recycled Cashmere. And so what I do is I go out and I go to thrift stores and I go, you know, all over the place and I collect sweaters that people aren't wearing anymore and I transform those into toques and scarves and, you know, mittens and things like that. But it's a very time-consuming process. And so in order to get kind of top dollar, I like to personally sell direct to the consumer because also each piece is one of a kind. And so to sell to a store, it's a little bit harder because they want to order, you know, six months in advance and they want to have, you know, 10 pieces of this, 10 pieces of that. And it's just kind of, I, I can't produce that. Like personally, that, that doesn't work. Like I don't know what I'm going to find. You know, I may not find the fabric or it may not be suitable. So I kind of find for me, I like to sell direct to the customer a little bit better. And I thought, you know, if I'm having this problem, the other designers have to be having this problem. And so I thought, you know, it would be really great if somebody did a show that was all fashion so people could come and they could find, you know, what we're looking for. And so I waited for a couple of years hoping that someone else would do it. And when nobody did, I said, screw it. I'm just going to do it myself. Go your own way, right? Exactly, exactly. And do you unravel the sweater then? Do you have to unravel the whole thing or is, is it uh, you just – I, I don't know how. No, I, cu- I cut and, and sew everything. And so I don't actually un- unknit it. Like I just cut and sew it with the fiber as it is. Okay, because I was going to say that would be time consuming. Yeah, yeah. But I do have to, you know, wash the fabric. And there's like a lot of other processing and it kind of, you know, it eats up time. Oh, and yeah. so it's it's so for me to be able to, you know, keep it affordable, it's actually better for me to sell direct to the consumer. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And that sort of boutique ethos, would you say that informs a lot of in, that, that informs independent fashion as a matter of course? Um, I don't know. I mean, I there's a lot of boutiques that sell local fashion. 
But I think part of the thing is that, you know, they're a very niche market and we kind of want to, you know, take it from, you know, like the Internet and Instagram and places, places where, you know, you're seeing these great visuals, but you're like, where do you get that? And, you know, maybe the boutiques, they they have the work in the store, but they might not have everything. Or because a lot of work is limited run, then, you know, they might be out of that fabric or, you know, they just have what they're doing at the time. Like, like first pick kind of, it allows everybody to bring whatever they want. It's not like, okay, you have to bring this or you have to bring that. Like people can bring whatever it is that they're working on at the moment. What is it you could find in first pick that you could not find anywhere else? I think it's just the combination of artists. Like I really put a lot of work into curating the show like people will apply for the show but I go through and I curate so they're not coming as a customer to see you know all the same thing like it actually feels like you're going to a boutique with 30 different designers in it but you're actually meeting the artists while you're there which is I think the important thing like that differentiates from you know just going into a boutique where maybe they sell handmade but you know, they don't have the same background or they can't say, you know, oh, this is the story behind this fabric or this fabric was, you know, passed down or I came to it this way. Like, like when you're buying direct from the artist, you actually get to know, you know, their perspective, why they're doing things. And so it's a little bit it's a little bit more in depth. So, OK, that's that, that's intriguing to me, because one of the things about all about a lot of things, but I guess this applies to fashion, is that there is definitely a, a devotion to branding required. Mm-hmm. And whether it's like uh, you got guys like ASAP Rocky doing these ventures in fashion where they're trying to brand themselves that way. Do you, How do you see that practice as being sort of significant to your field or culture as a whole? I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not really no. sure. Um, I mean, part of, part of the thing that we do brand ourselves, like say with, within First Pick, is that it's head to toe handmade. So we do, you know, we do hats, we do socks, we do underwear, we do everything kind of that you would need to do, you know, a full outfit. So I kind of look at it as like a little department store. But within that, every artist is doing something slightly different. And so, you know, like this time we have two body care lines. We have, um, we have, a bikini line. We have, you know, we have like a, a broad spectrum of products. We also have items for men, which often lack at shows. And one one of the venues that people, you know, tend to kind of think of when they think of handmade stuff is going to like markets like Eastside Flea or going to, you know, markets like Make It or, you know, the smaller kind of indie more craft fairs. Mm-hmm. But the difference between us and events like that is that we just do fashion and accessories only and so that's part of our branding and part of our marketing because I believe that if people are going to start to kind of think local first and think local fashion first then we have to present it to them in a way that's easily consumed with that consumer mentality where you're like okay I'm going out and I'm coming home and I'm going to have an item instead of like oh let's go see what we got. Because that's uh, that's that sort of mentality in Vancouver, especially because there's some there's some pretty big outlet stores in in the downtown now. Mm-hmm. Like you got you got Nordstroms in the downtown. I think you have mm-hmm. two Nordstroms locations in the downtown, and those are pretty. Or is that Neiman Marcus? Is where they're the very like super pricey ones. Yeah, we have a lot more there's, boutiques that are you know they're really high end, and so 
with with that, we know people are willing to spend money on what they wear. But with our show, we're saying, hey, why don't you spend some of that money locally? Because the money that's spent locally is actually kept within the community. And so we're, you know, recycling it around, you know, to our people and, you know, businesses that we we want to promote versus, you know, you're spending money someplace and that money's just gone out of the community. Like it's no longer supporting. Do you think that's indicative of the problem in Vancouver as a whole? I think it's everywhere. I think that we are sold to by companies. You know, we don't we don't think local first anymore. We don't think about going down the street and getting, you know, whatever it is that we need that day. Like, you know, say a pair of socks. You could go anywhere and, you know, find a pair of socks. But how many people go, okay, I want to find local socks. And then the other issue becomes, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, where do you actually go to get it? You know, where, where are these companies? And so a lot of people are hiding on the Internet, but there's no place that, you know, people can go and even find out that they exist. So when I did some of the research to try to find these brands, you know, like I'm searching hashtags for hours and hours and hours to try to, you know, source out like, you know, who's doing menswear in this town? You know, who is doing menswear in this town? That actually exactly. You have to come to the show and find out. <laughs> that's that's another thing too, because when when you think of like just the fashion scene in general, it's you, you don't really think a lot about men's fashion compared to mm-hmm. women's fashion, and that's um, like because I I um, I, I, I can't comment. I don't. I, you can see from my appearance, <laughs> I may be a little behind the schedule. The, um... But the thing with menswear is that it's the perfect example of slow fashion because men, the way that men shop, you know, they're not buying stuff to be trendy, Tip- typically. They're not going out going, okay, I want to buy a t-shirt that I'm throwing away in, you know, two months. They want to buy something so that they don't have to ever shop again. And so slow fashion is the perfect place for them to do that because, you you know, you might spend, you know, two $300 on a pair of pants, but if you're wearing that pair of pants, you know, a couple times a week for years, it's it's going to end up being the same price or cheaper in the long run. I call that the boots theory, actually, yeah. for the same reason. It's you can buy one $200 pair of boots or one $50 pair of boots and guarantee the $50 pair of boots are going to wear out in no time. But the $200 pair of boots, you'll probably still have those and your feet will be fine. Exactly. So. Exactly. It's as we need to shift, you know, kind of how we're thinking about what we're buying and I don't want to say stop with the, you know, immediate gratification, but, you know, we have to think about what is this doing to the planet? Am I still going to like this in six months or am I just being marketed to? Because I I find that, you know, a lot of people think they need something because they've been told they need something else. Like, you know, okay, I need a pair of high-waisted jeans because that's what's in style. But then suddenly, oh, but nobody's going to know I'm wearing high-waisted jeans if I don't have a crop top. So then you've, you know, sold something else to the Uh consumer. Whereas, you know, if people are just going with, okay, this is the stuff I like, I'm going to invest in this, I'm going to buy pieces that I love, then it's, you know, it's it's a different thought process. And so it's, I feel like with our show, we're kind of opening people's eyes to, well, A, what exists in Vancouver, and B, you know, that they don't have to be totally trendy to still have style because trend and style are totally different things. Oh, yeah. Well, I I would think oftentimes they're kind of antithetical mm-hmm. because um, a lot of style is sort of a sort of attitude that by definition kind of creates trend rather than exactly. follows it. Like, exactly. I, I, it's sort of a primacy there. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific. Where can we go and where can we go and see this? Where and when is first pick? First pick is this weekend, so March seventeenth and eighteenth at Heritage Hall. Um, it's eleven until six p.m. daily, so Saturday and Sunday. And our Instagram is a great place to kind of, you know, have a preview and see what's there, who's going to be there, you know, kind of create that shopping list. And so our Instagram handle is at firstpickyvr. That's it. Oh, 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 YVR, right. Yeah, first pick YVR. And then if people want to go on. I'm to that acronym for a second. <laughs> if people want to go online to look at the individual pro, um, the individual profiles of our artists, our website is firstpickhandmade.com. Okay. Terrific. But I would say Instagram's, you know, it's in your pocket. It's easy. You can kind of flip through and just see what you like. It's more visual. And for, for what we're doing, it's nice to be able to see the different fashions and, you know, different styles. Because we have eight jewelers, but everybody's doing something different. So there is definitely something for everyone at this event. It's kind of perfect for that, for the visual component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, it was lovely to have you there, Yana. And thank you. Thank you very much for thank stopping Thank you. All right, we're just going to take a quick PSA break, and then we'll be back with some interviews from, uh, well, Christine Kim and myself. Um, Be with you shortly. Cheers. When you join Balloon Club, we guarantee that you will be able to make a balloon poodle within the first day. Here at the UBC Ant Thank Club, we just like to talk about ants and compare ant farms. Uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Paperclip Club is all about, well, paperclips mostly. At Blah Club, you can blah, 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 There's only one club worth joining at UBC, and that's CITR 101.9 FM. We got free tickets to shows, whirly pops, professional help, and all types of audio engineering, passes to festivals, crazy parties, live band swag, all types of crazy people. Our programming manager rides a motorcycle. There's freestyle rapping, Nardwar, the human serviette, the vinyl and record libraries, Discord or magazine, free studio recording, and it sure beats the hell out of Paperclip Club, which is a thing that I just made up because I work at CITR. So come check us out on the floor of the Student Union Building. we got all types of crazy shit for you to do. Or check us out online at www.citr.ca. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. Allow me to tell you about... That was completely intentional. That was an excellent case of Radio Verite. Um, so uh, we're just going to have a, well, actually, we're going to have a pre-recorded, pre-recorded thing in just a second, uh, an interview of myself talking with author Robin Brunette, who is the author of uh, Let's Get Frank, a book about, well, the subtitle says it all, Frank Palmer, Canada's Madman of Advertising and a, uh, well, a proud son of Vancouver. You can take a listen right here. Uh, 
uh, Jake Clark, uh, broadcasting to you from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus, and I'm joined for this interview by Robin Brunette, the author of Let's Get Frank, a new release uh, about the life and times of Frank Palmer, uh, subtitled Canada's Madman of Advertising. How are you doing, Robin? I'm good. Thanks for having me on your show. Hey, it's a pleasure. It's uh, it, it was interesting when I heard about this because... Uh, uh, now, uh, like many of my viewers, I'm probably most familiar with advertising through the through Mad Men, which is a, a program I, I've seen a lot of. And there's a mm -hmm. lot in this book, sort of about how Frank lives up to the stereotype, but also kind of complicates it. And I was wondering if you'd like to unpack that first, sort of like give us an intro to the um, the biography as it stands. Well, uh, Frank, uh, against all odds. Uh, being uh, based in Vancouver, managed to make a, a, a national and one would say international reputation for himself and his company. Um, and he does indeed live, live up to the madman stereotypical uh, portrayal of, um, of an advertising man simply because he lived in that era. And they all behaved uh, very badly, but had a lot of fun behaving badly. In fact, Frank often says that the only difference between his behavior and those portrayed in, in Mad Men is that he had a, a hell of a lot of fun, m m way more fun than you saw on, on the TV series. But to complicate things, he is a very sharp businessman. His genius lies in finding creative people, matching them appropriately, and then letting them do their thing. That, that is what he will really be remembered for. And that's a that's it sounds easy, but that's a very very difficult thing to 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 possess as a talent, and it's a very difficult thing to initiate. There are many points in the book where they say because he he has a creative background, right? He has a he has a degree in painting in visual design, is it from Emily Carr? Yeah, it, he's, um, he's very much visually based, and in, in fact, uh, uh, as anybody who knows Frank and Frank will attest, he is not a writer. He he does not put sentences together well on on paper, but if you see him uh, as a graphic talent, uh, it's amazing to watch him uh, in action and, and some of the, the images he conjures on behalf of his clients. That's rather interesting because I was, I, I was actually going to ask, you know, if the ferociously competitive, flawed and flamboyant copy on the front under the subtitle, if he had a, a hand in the image of the, the book and its design. Uh, very perceptive. Douglas and McIntyre, the publishers, uh, knowing that, that Frank's forte was advertising and graphic art offered for once, uh, would you like to design the front and back covers as well as the insides? And Frank handed that off to a, to one of his uh, protégés who, who works at DTV Canada, and, and, and she, is, she is credited in the, uh, in the books. Uh, I, I, Seamus, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but, but she is the person who uh, designed the, the front and back covers, and they're brilliant. There's sort of these surimposed images of his face. Like, there's a serious face in the behind. There's the frivolity. And he's mm -hmm. quite the practical joker. That's a lot of the, the slant of this is talking about some of these very interesting kind of... Uh, I don't know, my voice kicked up there for a second. Sort of practical okay. jokes he's played on coworkers. And mm -hmm. I, I guess after sort of compiling these, because there's a lot of these instances, what would be your favorite account of his sort of... Uh, jokiness that you've heard or transcribed? Well, the one that sticks out for me is uh, Frank has this device. It looks like a key fob, and and when you click it, if you're standing near a television set, if you click this key fob, the, the television set loses its power. 
and he took a co-worker, a new co-worker out to lunch. And this co-worker was very uh, kind of naive and unsure of himself and, uh, and a little bit nervous sort of guy. So Frank took him out to this uh, sports bar, and they were tuned in to, uh, uh, as you can imagine, them eight or nine big screens all throughout the premises. Yeah. And the, the place was filled with people, and, and they were all watching this very important hockey game. I Don't ask me which one. But uh, the home team, was uh, it was one of these comeback things. They're all rooting for the home team. Everybody's jazzed up. And every time it looked like the home team was going to score a goal, Frank would take out his fob, click. And all the screens in the, in the entire pub would go blank, and and of course the 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 patrons quickly turned into a mob, and and so every time this happened, Frank must have done this five or six times, and 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 the mob grew angrier and angrier, yelling and screaming because of course the, you know their their viewing pleasure was ruined. But the thing is, Frank's new coworker was turning white and and sweat was running down his face because he, he you know frank if 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 these guys find out about this we're going to be tarred and feathered you know beaten up and 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 <laughs> and, and frank i mean he was sitting there with tears streaming down his face trying to hold in his laughter he, he thought this was funny and that's a and that's a typical example of frank's uh, sense of humor the one that i that kind of stood out to me because that, that one i thought that was a that's a great device to just kind of have like that sort of sounds like a get smart kind of device a little bit. Well, you know, he sent me he when we were writing the book, he, he showed me this other device he had. It was a little a tiny thing the size of a quarter, and it, it emitted some weird little pitch uh, uh, once uh, a minute, and then once every three minutes, and then once every ninety seconds. You know, staccato style. And the, the idea is you plant this in a room, and uh, whoever's in the room would gradually be aware of these sounds and have no idea what's going on. And, and he gave me one of these things. <laughs> Didn't he do that I, to I, one of his coworkers too, who was known to work yep, late that's to right. sort of convince that's him right. that there was a ghost? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it was the same. It was the same device. I think it's called the Evil Tron or so. But Frank goes online and orders these things by the dozen. Uh, so, so he gets them online. I thought for a second, like, does he make these things? Oh no, no, no. He 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 he, he scours the internet for joke devices, and and uh, he's a. He's a big kid. He's a 78-year-old guy who uh, really never never left his emotional teenage years, and which is very endearing. Yeah, that's mentioned frequently in the book as sort of this sense of, of youthfulness. And this is interesting, particularly interesting, I think, for our listeners towards the end of the book, which is describing what he's up to now, because he's still working uh, mm -hmm. in, in some capacity. And a lot of his work in advertising is dealing with digital natives and dealing with this change in the medium. And mm -hmm. I, I'm just sort of wondering, as part of what can be um, gained from, from his story, what is your, your takeaway as a biographer from the relationship between him being this advertiser from an era that's described as dying, making his way still in a world that is changing very deeply and where the discourse is very different? I, without sounding stereotypical, knowing Frank, and I've known him for about five or six years now because I originally started writing this book four years ago, or I should say I finished writing it four years ago. It took that long to get this thing published. But Frank taught me, and I think I said it in the afterword of the book, he taught me that you can be 39 years old forever. And that's not, uh, that's not puffery. I, I really 
did feel that being exposed to Frank. I mean, he's 78, pulling in full days, 10-hour days, getting up at 5 a.m., having fun with it, virtually no signs of slowing down whatsoever. He certainly still has an eye for the women, too. Um, uh, (laughs) And uh, that's inspiring. And and he loves work for the sake of work. He just enjoys and he embraces new technology. He always has. You you invent something that's new, Twitter, whatever, he embraces it immediately, uh, like a little kid. And, and masters it very immediately. Now, what's not to like about that? What's not to be inspired about that? I, you know, I, I, I'm 57, and Frank made me feel that my entire life is still ahead of me. So that's the gift that Frank can give people. That sounds like a terrific reason to check out this book. How long ago was it published, recently? It was released February the 17th of this year, but we finished the first draft uh, four years ago, and... Uh, that's another story entirely. Don't uh, don't get me started on the publishing industry. <laughs> don't have time. <laughs> All right, but check out Let's Get Frank, courtesy of Douglas and McIntyre Publishing. Perfect. All right. Pleasure to talk with you, Robin. Uh, have a good Thank one. Thank you so much. And, uh, Thank you. And cheers. Take care. Yep, I've, I've read the book, actually. There's some interesting anecdotes in it. I think well, I, I should have made a Jack Benny reference when he said about being 39 for, for, your, uh, for your whole life. You know, one gag, too, which I think is also really indicative of advertising is there's a bit where Frank's wife, she's a big admirer of Belvedere vodka. uh, So Frank gets a bottle of, like, whatever cheap vodka you can get and puts that in a bottle of Belvedere. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I love Belvedere. And he's like, he's laughing the whole time. And I'm of the opinion that, you know, all vodkas are created equal because it's literally just alcohol and water, however you get it, right? So I, I thought that, that that gave me a little chuckle. Um, before we see into our next interview, which is from Christine Kim regarding the uh, Goldberg variations, uh, I think I might have said Brandenburg Concertos earlier. I don't know how I confuse those. Uh, we got a couple giveaways to throw at you. Uh, the first is the Museum of Anthropology's Culture at the Center uh, initiative, which is the uh, collusion of five indigenous-run cultural centers in... Um, a single exhibition, uh, and this is going from March 18th to October 8th, 2018, um, and we are uh, offering for call-ins, we're offering uh, a pair of passes to this. There will be a media tour taking place on Tuesday, March 15th at 11 a.m., uh, so if you call in about that, just sort of call in, tell us if you about an experience you've had with MOA or if you've never had an experience and you'd like to. Uh, another ticket giveaway, which will also be running next show, is for the upcoming Crucible. And I'm looking very forward to this, uh, as anybody who knows me is very, very aware by this point. Um, and... Uh, for that, we've been furnished a pair of t- uh, a pair of tickets, and for uh, for call-ins there, I guess um, we kind of want to hear how you how you relate to the words of the the late Artie Miller. Who's good? Who's good with the words and what? Um, and sort of if there's an importance to the Crucible, because I because I think there is, but I kind of want to hear if that's true for anyone else. Um, but more on that later. Uh, here's Christine Kim regarding the Goldberg variations. Um, yeah, so thanks for uh, making the time to speak to me today. It's always nice having you on the program <laughs> to talk about what, you know, Early Music Vancouver is up to. Well, great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. 
so I guess just to start off, I mean, what is the series that Early Music uh, Vancouver is doing right now? I know it's called the Goldberg Experience, but can you uh, tell me a bit more about what it's about and who you guys have already had on the series? Well, so um, I should just probably clarify that yeah. the, the Goldberg Experience is what we're calling this sort of sub-series of our, of our much broader series. So Early Music ah. Vancouver is... Um, a company that puts on a, about 35 different um, performances per year in Vancouver, and most of them are, are, are um, uh, on period instruments, in fact. And uh, so this is a, this is a special uh, kind of one-off series in which we're uh, exploring this totally iconic work from many, many different perspectives and, and allowing the audience to sort of compare and contrast um, different musicians uh, playing and interpreting uh, the same very famous piece. I mean, the Goldbergs are kind of universally regarded as as a masterpiece, and so they're beloved by by people and musicians from almost every single different musical background. Mm. And 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 we just thought it'd be fascinating to hear, in a way, the extent to which the same piece can sound different. And 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 if if um, if there's a piece that bears kind of repeated listening, it's it's this one. Right, right. So, so, you know, normally, like I said before, we're, we're involved with, with demonstrating to our audiences how historically informed performance practice can make music of any, any given period more uh, expressive. But this project is a little bit about acknowledging that it's also, and perhaps ultimately important to recognize that, that as an organization that we value performance and quality of performance and artistry more than the technological hardware that we're that that a musician is using do you see what i mean hmm so i mean with the goldberg variations and the different takes that i guess you can have on it is it more improvisation of the notes or simply how you play the notes that are on the the sheet well, that's a that's a good question. The, you know, the Goldberg variations are, are written down in in, in perfect detail, right? Mm. So, so um, the, the interpretive choices that most people make are are going to be um, things like tempo and um, and 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 other interpretive choices, like uh, you know, in, in, the, in the case of a pianist, anyway, of of dynamics, you know. It's not about improvising, although that said, you know, we did invite Dan Tepfer, who's a, a very famous jazz pianist, uh, to come and do uh, what, what was a very, very special project in which he um, improvised his own variations on each of the set variations by J.S. Bach. So that was, that was a radically different approach to it um, that was almost kind of a, you know, a new music jazz approach and... and uh, and we, that, that was utterly fascinating. So we thought it would be interesting for our audiences to just get the chance to hear how how different the, the same piece can sound played on a harpsichord or played by a modern pianist. Or, you know, maybe further down the line, we'll, we'll hear what it sounds like played by a string quartet, you know, because it, it's it's certainly been arranged for string quartet. And, and, the, and if it's been arranged for string quartet, there's no reason why we can't hear it played on the saxophone, too. Mm-hmm. Now, and this is the type of thing that people who are, are, are deeply into uh, performance practice sometimes have a hard time with, meaning they, they say, well, look, that's not the way that the piece was conceived. It was written to be played on, a, on an organ or on a harpsichord. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think that type of rigidity and thinking uh, is kind of, it's not, it's not super fun, <laughs> you know? I think if, 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 if we all always adhered sort of slavishly to the facts of performance practice, then, then it wouldn't, it would, it would 
things would get pretty tight. And strangely, I don't know how much you know about the early music movement, but you know, it it it, um, it started as a kind of countercultural revolution and rebellion against the, the the dogma and orthodoxy of the 19th century symphonic orchestra and how they uh, played all repertoire with the same. Uh, interpretive approach in a way, you know, and and uh, all of these musicians in the 70s and 80s who started exploring original period instruments, they, they were very much interested in in in, um, in going back to the sources and exploring how differently this music was actually uh, approached in the past, and and that's still very much what EMV is going to continue to um, to keep as our core mission, because we believe that often original instruments help make the music of any given time period more expressive but but that doesn't mean that from time to time we can't explore how um some performers choose to take old repertoire and then do whatever they want with it for their own interpretive reasons and using whatever technology they feel like it you know mm-hmm. they feel like so um I, I guess i just think it's important to avoid that the type of rigidity and adherence to any performance practice dogma that like I said, ironically, the early music movement was rebelling against in the first place when it right. started. <laughs> right, right. And I do really want to congratulate you on the successes that you guys have been having as a group, Early Music Vancouver, bringing this kind of modern interpretation to early music. You guys are close to being 50 years old now. And yeah, it's been astonishing. It's been astonishing just the extent to which our audience has grown and... and um, I think that's that has something to do with just the fact that we've been we've been um, marketing a little bit more carefully and professionally. Hmm. But I also think it's because we um, I think we've consistently been presenting stuff that's at a really really high standard, and we've also been presenting a huge variety of stuff. So, you know, when you say what is early music, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's a thousand years of cultural history. So that means that in our program, you know, it's not going to all just be Baroque music, although we do a lot of Baroque music, especially since we, we took over the, 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 um, the Pacific Baroque Orchestra. But, you know, on, on our season that we're going to announce on, on Wednesday, there's music from the classical period. There's Mozart. There's music from the early Romantic period, Schubert. There's music from, uh, we're even presenting some Benjamin Britten. We're presenting a bunch of new music contemporary classical music written for period instruments again. There is music from Renaissance Crete. There's music from Poland. There's, you know, there's there's English music in the 17th century. There's medieval music, um, Guillaume de Machaut, you know, so there's there's a, there's a, a really big variety of stuff mm. on the program, which I think has meant that um, we've managed to make friends with people from many, many different spheres of interest. With the success that Early Music Vancouver has been having, has it been easier to to find these interpretations, I guess, of early music that you hadn't known of? No, I mean, you know, I'm 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 um, you know, 20 years on the international scene as a as a singer, so I, I spent a lot of time traveling the world, meeting and hearing people. Mm. And then, since I stopped singing about four years ago, I still every year go to go to the the major early music festivals. I also go to a lot of other classical music, so I feel like I'm, I'm staying pretty current in, in terms of knowing who's out there on the international scene, mm. and I do my best to bring um, the best people that we, we can afford, you know? Um, I'm also trying to balance a bunch of different priorities that, you know, that are sort of organizational priorities, and, and, and one of them is for us to support more regional artists. And so we're, we're doing our best to um, marry some of the best regional talent with some of the best international talent and have them work together 
So that's largely what the PBO is about, what the Pacific Broke Orchestra is about. So mm. we we, um, we bring international stars to, to, to work with them, and but we also make a real uh, effort to have the PBO be as much, uh, you know, BC-based period instrumentalists as we can while maintaining uh, an international standard of music making. So... Um, you know, we've got a lot of a lot of different priorities that we have to keep in line. You know, because you, you, there's there's what you want, and then there's um, what you value before. So, so we're trying to keep all those things in balance. And, and when it comes to, to Angela Hewitt, I mean, I I've known about Angela Hewitt since I was a little boy because I, I, I'm from Ottawa. Angela uh, is a little bit older than I am, but but she's also from Ottawa, and she was the the daughter of a guy called Godfrey Hewitt, who was the organist at Christchurch Cathedral. So I've heard about the legend of Angela Hewitt since I was a little kid, and and um, and she's you know uh, unarguably one of the top uh, Bach keyboard interpreters on the planet. And so when I heard that she was going on a she had she had this four year project to to perform all of Bach's keyboard works all over the world, and um, then speaking to another arts administrator in Ottawa uh, about the fact that he had booked her as part of this Bach odyssey she's calling it i thought oh well we you know we, we have to get her on our series because um she's a she's a canadian legend um and uh and the response to you know to, to this is pretty astonishing it's going to be absolutely packed so she's, she's obviously a canadian hero and um yeah i thought we'd be crazy not to not to put her on the series yeah yeah and i mean angela hewitt is also, uh, when I was doing a bit of research, uh, not the only Canadian pianist that's famous for being a Bach pianist. The late Glenn Gold was also one that, uh, well, also a Canadian that I guess many critics worldwide had praised. What are your thoughts on the history of Canadian talent, I guess, when it comes to classical music? And you were saying how one of your mandates or motivations is to promote regional talent. Uh, do you think that Canada can boast a pretty significant contribution to the classical music scene? Oh, yeah. I feel like we definitely, um, you know, box uh, above our weight class for sure, you know. Um, and that's partially because I think there's still arts funding in Canada that, that's sort of disproportionate compared to a lot of other countries. And, and I hope it, it, it uh, continues to grow. Um, but, yeah, no, Canada, you know, on the international classical music stage, we are disproportionately well represented. And, and uh Glenn Gould, you know, use that as an example. Um, he's obviously very important in the history of the Goldberg Variations, too, because like Angela Hewitt, he did two recordings, one at the, be you know, sort of the beginning of his career and one at the end of his career, and Angela has now recorded it twice as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the brilliance of that 1950, I think it was 1955 or 1954 recording was, was just... Um, transformative for a lot of people. I mean, I, I'll never forget the first time I heard it. I, I was dating a girl uh, in Belgium, and uh, I was sitting in her living room, and I was, I guess, 17 at the time, and this thing came on the radio, and I just, like, my ears just went straight up, and I said, what the hell is that? You know, wow. Oh, the clarity and the transparency and the, and, and, and the, the, it just dances, you know. And and I, I thought that's well, that's brilliant. What is that? And of course, you know, it was it was Glenn Gould's early recording, and um, and I've listened to it bits of it probably every week since I was seventeen, and I'm forty five now. So it's it's like, you know, it was his his recording of the piece was extremely important. There are other important interpreters of that piece too, but but he was really the one who I think. Uh, sort of made that benchmark recording you know that that everybody compares um everybody compares their their favorite version to the, the glenn gould version you know mm -hmm. and um 
That reminds me of a funny story, actually. We, we had Mahan Esfahani, who was a, a, he's a Persian harpsichordist, a Persian-American harpsichordist. Um, and he came and, and, and did the, the variations for us a few years ago. And uh, I, David Gordon Duke asked him, uh, who's a, a well-known critic here in Vancouver, in the, in the pre-concert talk, um, what is it like to perform the, 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 the Goldberg variations in the home country of the great Glenn Gould? Yeah. Uh, and and Mahan's very funny response was, "Well, I don't know. I've never listened to it." <laughs> and and the audience just gasped because it was it, it just seemed so offensive. You know, the idea that you would come to Canada <laughs> and not even have bothered to listen to the recording of you know, perhaps one of the greatest recordings of the piece ever just seemed incredibly arrogant. And uh, it was funny. It did not put the audience on his side. Let's put it that way. And Mahan Estefani has also uh, had had performed as part of the Goldberg Variations um, after Experience. Dan Tepfer, right? Uh, he as, did, yeah. As the yeah, it was a is a gramophone recording. No, he's a gramophone recording artist. So he's uh. he's an enormously uh, talented person. Mm. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, and it was, I think, one of his first uh, public performances of the Goldberg. So it was a, it was a very, it was very interesting to hear him in comparison with Dan Tepfer. You know, Dan Tepfer's interpretation was, as I mentioned earlier, was very different in that mm. you know he he performed his own variations, his own compositions, right before he then went on and played each variation as by Bach as written. Mm. And uh, it was a very, very uh, idiosyncratic performance two of, of the original and it was just fun to compare the two so we're just going to keep bringing more people back yeah. uh, to, to do the same piece because if you look at our season we have you know between 30 and 35 performances of, of enormously varied repertoire and I, I like the idea that that over you know five ten years even we, we keep bringing back different artists to do one piece like that again and again and again. It's, you, you can never hear the piece too many times. And uh, it's an opportunity for the audience to, to, to listen and um, to a piece they know really well and, and to, to think about how different people interpret it. And uh, I, I like the idea that people aren't threatened by difference, too, that, that they, can, they can listen to it and appreciate or not appreciate but still walk out with a smile on their face, you know, yeah. and feeling energized and, and engaged. So, no, I mean, I, I, I resist the idea that it's, it's a lack of, um, of creativity in, in, in programming a piece like that again and again. It's, it's, I think there's value in, in that, mm-hmm. in, in, in hearing pieces that we know well done di- significantly differently. What are, I mean, you've already listed so many names, but um, are there any others that you uh, want to highlight or can give us the scoop about? Um, well, I mean, the thing is that when you talk about, about modern interpreters of early music, I mean, uh, you know, there's just everybody who appears on our series, everybody, um, <laughs> is, is, is worth hearing. Um, and and the, the biggest thing I'd like to encourage uh, our, our audience uh, to do is to look at all of the different stuff we have on offer and, and if it's stuff that they don't notice take take a, a chance on it mm. because there, there's repertoire here that people will know a lot less well than the Goldberg variations but it's you know absolutely worth hearing and and um, and this is a this is a um, you know it's a business too so we have to we have to make sure to continue to program works that people know well um, but, you know, some of my favorite moments over the last few years have been um, concerts featuring artists that, that our audience d- didn't yet know, 
singing or playing music that the, that, that the audience also didn't know. So that's a tough thing to ask people to do, to come out to something that they've, they've never heard of, played or sung by people that they've also never heard of. Mm -hmm. But um, I hope that over time people will start to really trust that our... Um, that whatever we put on our series is is, is absolutely worth hearing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just I encourage people to, to stay tuned to the the season announcement, which happens on March seventh. Leela Getz now, who runs the Vancouver Recital Society, has spent you know um, has, has been doing this for a long time, and her audience is now starting to really trust her. I think you know mm. that that when she says an artist is going to be great. They show up and every time, yep, that's true. So I'm, I'm hoping that I can develop the same loyalty um, here. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish we had more time to talk, Matthew, but I know that I need to let you go. Uh, so thank you so much again for uh, speaking to me about both the performance uh, that's coming up on Wednesday, um, as well as just more broadly about classical music. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye, Matthew. Bye, then. That was Christine Kim's interview with Matthew White regarding the Goldberg variations. Got it right this time. After a quick PSA break, we'll be back with correspondent Ileana Souza to tell us about the Out at the Inn comedy extravaganza and Lila Downs' recent performance at the Chan Center. Now a word from our sponsor. Quarter Magazine has been supporting local music for over 30 years. Thanks to the long-term support of the Rickshaw Theatre, Discorder lives. Favorite bands are playing at the Rickshaw Theater. Check out their calendar just behind the cover of Discorder Magazine or at rickshawtheater.com. There's only one way that old clunker is going to make you feel good again. Donate it to Bullying Canada. Check this out. Free towing or pickup of your old vehicle. A tax-deductible receipt. And a super easy process. Online at bullyingcanada.ca. Get rid of that old vehicle and feel good about supporting real solutions for change in your community. Donate your old or used vehicle to Bullying Canada today. Full details online at bullyingcanada.ca. I am still confused about the automotive connection there, but um, it's a good cause, I guess. <laughs> How are you doing, Ileana? I'm doing really, really well, so that's good. So which one do you want to talk about first, Lila Downs or Out at the Inn? Um, I kind of want to do Lila Downs first because I really enjoyed her performance uh, at the Chan Center on March the 10th on Saturday. It was really amazing. Um her songs were just really very uh, she's an activist so a lot of her songs were about like uh, the kind of perception uh, Mexican and Latinx people feel that are um, are placed onto them and like the struggles that they go through and it was just really inspiring and it was just really beautiful you had like a bunch of videos that were playing with her songs and there were like Mexican dancers it was just so much fun what's her style like what's the sort of musical uh, thing going on um her style I it's it's very classical kind of like Mexican style where she, like her voice, it's very focused on like that kind of voice that she has where it's like loud and deep and it's just so beautiful. It would remind I'm pretty sure my father has a bunch of her records because I was like, I feel like I've heard her before and I talked to my parents about it and he does. Sure. She, 
Okay, neat. So <laughs> that was he was very jealous of uh, of such an experience of being able to go see her. And and how was the uh, how was the turnout for it? Pretty good. Yeah, it was really good. I think in the very ending of her uh, of the whole concert, people started really getting into it. You had people coming like standing up and dancing. Like it was really like a really good crowd and just like a really good feeling where everyone just really wanted to be a part of such a great performance so it was just really amazing and awesome i'm very lucky to have gone okay excellent that's that's always good to hear i like knowing i sent someone to something (laughs) (laughs) yeah to show that i'm not a sadist all right what about out at the end then oh out of the end so what was Um, out at the end for those out of the end is this original comedy show by the leaping thespians um it's about oh i get it (laughs) did you get my yeah it's um it's a, a woman theater group that focuses on queer stories. Uh, this story was about a couple, Marie and Mary, who uh, bought themselves an inn, and it goes so well, and then they find out that the inn is so bad. They got gypped. It's, like, so many problems, and they had to, like, figure out what to do with it with uh, with dealing and dealing with uh, all their different types of fun le- lesbian neighbors all of their neighbors are lesbian well all of our neighbors are almost lesbians. That sounds like a really interesting song <laughs> almost title. all of them they are um uh a gay couple and a pansexual so um but they're all queer that's someone who's turned on by cookware right Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. Don't worry, they totally do that joke in this. In the... Do do they? Good. Okay, they so we're do. on the same page. <laughs> Jasmine was like, "Okay, they have to do they have to do that joke. If they're gonna have a pansexual, they have to do the pan joke." Is it is it like a, is it more verbal humor? Or is it more slapstick? Um, more slapstick. You have you just have these really fun characters. My favorite character. That was so funny that um, in the beginning it was kind of meh for a while, but once this character come, came out, her name is Yoni, and once she comes out, I get it. <laughs> yeah, they're not they're not too subtle. I know, on that. I know. Uh, but once she comes out, the humor of the play really starts like really blossoming out. <laughs> okay, and uh, all right. So, and this is this is a play. It's not a variety show. Because I was yes. wondering if it was like a variety show around a plot. No, oh, it's no, a it's a, it's a play, and it's coming. It's out from March thirty thirteenth to March seventeenth at eight p.m. at the Russian Hall Theater, and I would definitely recommend it. All right, it's a it's right. a fun show that you kind of weren't expecting to be as awesome as it was. Really? Okay, that, that's a good that's a good endorsement for it. Um, <laughs> one show I, I kind of want to touch on personally, which is just um, just 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 briefly because we we actually they, we were gonna do a review for this, but we couldn't um, squeeze it in. organize it really. No, is um there's Harvey is um a show that's gonna be on soon, and um, that's Western Gold Theater for the 25th anniversary season. Um, that is. Uh, March 16th to 18th 
uh, 7.30, 9.30 p.m. at the Powell Studio Theater on Cardero Street. Um, and the the thing about Harvey's, Harvey's a story very, is very interesting uh, to me. It's a, it's a story that's been very interesting to me for a while because I, I really like the movie. Uh, it's been... like uh, it, Harvey is a movie about... Uh, more or less, you know, you know the plot of Harvey. You know what it's about. No, I have no idea. Okay, so the original movie is about Elwood P. Dowd, played by Jimmy Stewart, uh, and it is essentially um, Elwood believes that he Elwood has an imaginary friend. Elwood, since by the way, is, is in his. 40, 30, 40. He's a puka. His friend's a, a puka, if you're familiar with Irish mythology a little bit, resembling an anthropomorphic rabbit. Okay. Uh, Harvey, who is six foot three and a half inches tall and a rabbit. And uh, Elwood is kind of a boozer, kind of a, but a completely harmless person. And that's sort of, the message of Harvey is don't interfere with happy people, more or less. Uh, and. <laughs> I kind of like that. No, it's just like, it, it, like if someone's happy, it doesn't really matter how that happens. And it's not a, a grave film. It's a very easy film to watch. It's a very good film. And I, I really want to know how they um, put this on stage because I, 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 I got to appreciate that sort of being able to tell that story uh, with the kind of sensitivity and the kind really of just awareness of life the movie does because the movie does make the point that yeah life can be difficult and Elwood's got it pretty good as is Mm -hmm. but you know he's causing no harm to anyone embarrassment maybe (laughs) occasionally like he gets a a giant picture of him and Harvey painted and hung on the wall that's beautiful a very very good uh moment of comedy there but yeah it's worth checking out so yeah um check those guys out as well so out at the end Harvey, um, I guess check out Lila Downs' music because she's no longer here. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, worth listening to. Definitely check out Lila Downs. She's amazing. Also, just supporting Mexican songwriters is yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's like, a, is it like the Americana aesthetic a little bit that we saw at uh, Texas Troubadours, or is it more mm, traditional Mexican? More kind of traditional, I feel. All right. Do they use classical guitars or normal guitars? Uh, I think... Normal guitars. Okay, because I, I was wondering about because like Spanish flamenco uses classical yeah. guitar, um, and I was wondering about the similarity. But I guess Mexican music would probably be similar to Americana music because it's developed. Yeah, it's the same continent. Yeah, uh, and she she talks a lot about the kind of uh, hi- the musical history that she's doing and the type of genres that she's picking up from South America, which is really interesting. It was a really nice little uh, tidbit of information that you learned doing the show that's excellent okay uh this has been the arts report on citr 101.9 fm we're running right up to our time uh i'm jake clark i'm eliana sosa and catch you next week cheers how does this keyboard work any minute now (laughs) 